We are uh, continuing on in the series this morning uh, out of the book of 1 John called Getting the Most Out of Your Walk. Very, very simple word picture. Picture a dude walking down the road. And uh, John equates just the simple exercise of walking to our spiritual life, that you and I are all on a walk with God. We're walking in our souls. We're walking in our spirit. We're walking relationally. And he's going to show us, he is showing us how to get the most out of it. So as I always do, let's pray, and then we'll dive right into the Word. Father, I, uh, I thank you that you have been very faithful to Scottsdale Bible Church over the years. <clears throat> through all the ups and downs, through all of our humanity and fallenness, you have been really good to this church. And uh, it's undeserving, and we're grateful. And Lord, as, uh, it was a real blow four or five years ago to have Ed Wilmington move on to Fuller Seminary and uh, go to teach there, um, and that left a huge hole here. We've uh, very prayerfully, Lord, and carefully selected who we believe would be your man for the next season of worship in our, in our church's life, and we thank you for uh, bringing us to Troy, and uh, we pray that, God, we all share in that excitement and welcome him enthusiastically. God, as we turn to your word now, we uh, pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have written to us. We believe in your revelation, your truth to us, and uh, we don't want to walk out of here empty but more full than when we came in. So do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I love the uh, story of the minister who was walking down the road one day, and he came upon a group of about a dozen boys, ages 10 to 12, and they were hovering over this old dog and concerned that they were hurting the animal, the minister went over and asked him, what are you doing with that dog? And one of the boys replied, well, this dog is just an old stray and we all want him, but only one of us can take him home. So we decided that whichever one of us can tell the biggest lie gets to keep the dog. The minister was kind of taken back by this and he said, well, you boys shouldn't be having a contest telling lies. Don't you boys know what's a sin to lie? And then he launched into a 10-minute sermon about lying and he ended his speech by telling the boys, and when I was your age, I never told a lie. There was dead silence for about a minute, and just as the minister was beginning to think he had gotten through to them, the smallest boy gave a deep sigh and said, all right, he wins, give him the dog. <laughs> Great. You gotta love kids. You gotta love kids. They, they always tell it like they see it, right? In fact, think about it, kids are probably one of the most honest group of human beings this side of heaven. I, I, my kids are now older. They're 20, 18, and 16. But when they were real little, Kim and I would cringe at the things that they would say, you know, in a grocery store. Like, Daddy, why is that guy so fat? You know, or something like that, you know. And you'd be like, oh, you're not supposed to say that. But again, that's kids. Kids are really, really honest. And they're very, very authentic. What you see is what you get. And, and yet the problem is, is that as we get older, as you and I now become adults, we find that this honesty and authenticity thing is a lot more difficult when you get in the real world. Have you found that yet? Uh, Dr. Perry Buff Bluffington is a clinical psychologist, author, and columnist, and he cites that the research shows that there's at least three situations where the average adult is not themselves. I found this kind of humorous. Three situations. First, the average person puts on airs when he or she visits a fancy hotel lobby. In other words, you walk into a hotel lobby and you see the, the grandiosity of it all and immediately you feel very small and you're going to be anything but yourself in that environment. Uh, second, a typical person will hide his or her emotions and bamboozle the salesperson when they enter a new car showroom, right? 
Like the last place you're ever going to be yourself or you're going to be honest is, is when you're trying to buy a new car. A lot of people tend to relate to that too. And thirdly, and for our purposes this morning, and probably most sad is that studies show that as the average person takes their seat in church or synagogue, they try to fake out God and others that they've really been good all week long. Isn't that interesting? That's where you get this reputation that we're all good on Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday is a totally different ballgame, right? Let's face it, we all struggle as adults with being honest and authentic. I mean, authenticity is in vogue in our culture today. It's been that way for about 20, 30 years. Culture changed, and it became really popular to be authentic, and that's good. But the reality is, is that we still struggle with it in our lives. And yet, as much as we struggle... One of the things I love about human beings is that we also all own the fact that honesty and authenticity is an absolutely critical trait, especially, now listen, when it comes to our relationships, right? I mean, it's one thing to be dishonest on a tax form. It's one thing to be dishonest in your business dealings. It's one thing to be dishonest, you know, on maybe filling out some other form for school. But the reality is that though all those things are bad, there's nothing worse, and you and I know this, than inauthenticity or dishonesty in a relational environment, a marriage, or with your child, or with a good friend, or how about with God, that honesty is really that important. And so here's the deal. Last week we started a new series here at Scottsdale Bible called Getting the Most Out of Your Walk. It's based on the New Testament book of 1 John, and we're taking a look at the specific things that John throws our way that are needed to get the most out of our walk with God. And after setting up this series by going over some needed background stuff last week that John, you know, who John was originally writing to and why he was writing, all the really important stuff, today we come to the very first thing that he wants us to know about how to get the most out of our walk. And guys, I'm telling you, it's going to have everything to do with this idea of honesty. And so let's read about this in 1 John and see what God wants us to know about how to walk honestly. If you brought a Bible, 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, we're going to read up into chapter 2, chapter 1 is real short, to verse 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, the Scripture is probably on your outline. I know it will be up here on the screen, so read along with me. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, there's obviously a lot in in this passage here. I mean, if you looked in the Bible commentaries, it's pretty thick in what they write about here. Because you got things like universal atonement going on here, propitiation for sins, confession, lots of different themes. But for our purposes this morning, in this idea of walking honestly, I want you just to take away two ideas from this passage that I believe will more than get us all going on what it means to walk honestly. And here's the first one, and that is that it's telling us that God is holy and that our sins cut us off from ongoing fellowship with Him. 
And though some of you are tempted right away of saying, golly, Jamie, that's like Christianity 101. I know that. I'm not just talking about the plan of salvation, something that you tell somebody before they become a Christian, the idea that, you know, sin has cut you off from God and you need to accept Jesus and now all your sins will be forgiven, though that's true. No, I'm talking about that I think John is writing to believers here, to you and I, and that what he's telling us here is that God is holy still and that our sins still cut us off from ongoing fellowship with him and that we need to perk up and do something about them. You'll see what I mean in a minute if we're going to walk honestly. So track with me here, folks, the logic, if you will, of what John is saying. Notice it begins in verse 5 by telling us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, he begins with a description of God's holiness. He's telling us that God is absolutely holy, absolutely pure, and he uses this analogy of light and darkness to show us this, saying God is pure light. You guys remember this? John had experienced that. He had experienced the blinding light of Jesus' transfiguration up there on the mountain. He knew what God's holiness in the form of light looked like. And in holiness and light, John says, God is there and there's no darkness at all. So it's a clear statement right at the outset here of God's character and being that he is holy, that he is light. But then notice next in John's logic that he tells us in our walk with him then, we're to walk in this same light interesting. In other words, we're to be holy as well. That's the second step in his thinking. He says in verses 6 and 7 to have true fellowship, or as we saw last week, relationship with God and each other. It requires that you and I also walk in the light, walk in the same realm of holiness that God as well is in. And repeating this in the negative, kind of like giving us a double whammy, he says the opposite is true as well, that if we fail to walk in the light, and by default walk in darkness, then we're duplicitous, we're hypocritical, and we're obviously not those who practice the truth. And so track where he's going here, guys. God designed us to have fellowship relationship with himself. And because God is pure light and has nothing to do with darkness, then it goes without saying that those who are going to walk with him need to walk as well in holiness and in the light. And yet, as you guessed it, there's a problem. As John continues his logical progression here, notice a third obvious truth he now makes clear, and that is that we all do sin, however, even as followers of Jesus, and we fail to walk in the light as God is in the light. He couldn't be more clear about this in verses 8 and 10. After just saying that we're to walk in the light of God's holiness, uh, he says that if we, do the, if we say that we do this perfectly and that we have no sin, then we're obviously liars and the truth isn't in us. What truth, you ask? Namely, the truth that we live in a fallen world filled with sin and that none of us are immune. Even as sincere Christ followers, he's saying you're still going to sin. And so we don't walk in the light as he is in the light, at least all the time. And so in a very real way, he's already set us up here for failure. God is light. He's pure holy. If we're going to walk with him, we need to walk in the light. But guess what? You're not going to do that. And if you even say you're going to do it, you're a liar, he says. And to add insult to all of this injury, where this progression finally leads us, is that he tells us that our sin clearly cuts us off from fellowship or immediate relationship with God. That's the dilemma he lays out here. That the same fellowship that you and I were designed for, the same fellowship that God calls us to be in relationship with him in the light, is a fellowship that becomes broken and darkened when we sin. 
In other words, sin, he's telling us, gets in the way of relationship with God. Why? Well, duh, because God is holy and designed to walk in holiness, and sin keeps us from experiencing his holiness. As verse 6 says so clearly, we do not practice the truth. And so here's the crux, folks. Though many, if not most of us, know that this idea is true for all of humanity from birth, in other words, we've been telling our kids and people for years that before you're a Christian that sin separates you from God and that you don't know God even though you think you might do and that unless you come to him in Jesus, you're not going to experience salvation. Though that's a truism, what I think John is telling us here is that for the Christ follower who has already trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, that sin still lives in our hearts and minds and it has a power to cut off fellowship and relationship as well when we commit it and don't do anything about it. In other words, it's a cutoff from God that might not be eternal in nature because Christ's blood has already forgiven us eternally of all sins, but it has the power, don't miss this, to temporarily cut us off from God in the immediate relationship. And all I would argue is that once you get this, it makes sense. We get this in all the other relationships of our lives. We just don't apply it to God very well. In other words, if you're married here today, look, you know that if you do something offensive to your wife or wives do something offensive to your husbands, there's a good chance if you have a strong marriage that they're not going to call it quits even over something that you do that offends them, right? They're not going to say marriage over, let's go into divorce court, it's now, you know, no longer a marriage. No, of course they're not going to do that. You're still going to be married. But we also know that if you do something offensive and hurtful to your spouse, then there is a breach of that relationship in that moment. Give me a head nod that we all get that, right? And until something is done about that breach, that wedge in the relationship, there's a problem that sin, i.e. your sin, has created. And we teach the same thing to our kids. I got three teenagers. And believe me, they do things that put a wedge in the relationship at times. And when they do that, I don't kick them out of the family. I don't say I disown you. You know, get out of the family. Don't want to call yourself a Rasmussen anymore. No, I say, yeah, you're part of the family, but now there's a wedge in the relationship between dad and daughter or dad and son, and we got to deal with this thing. In other words, sin we own in, in our relationships tends to put a wedge in that relationship. And all John is saying here is that it's the same with God. That for those of us who have come to Christ in salvation, it's, not no, it's no longer that sin will cause you to lose your salvation. That's not what John is saying. On the contrary, we're still saved and in his care. But the fellowship, the immediacy of relationship is disrupted when we sin and don't do anything about it. And it's the first thing that John wants us to see. And before we go on, folks, to talk about what John says is the answer to this dilemma that we universally face, I want to ask you a really important question in this point. And that is simply this, that in a world that spends an inordinate amount of time and energy trying to cover up and deny that we all sin and that sin can break fellowship, do you personally recognize today and truly believe that you still sin and that your sin, even as a follower of Jesus, has the capacity to distance you from God. What's your answer to that question? Because I find that a lot of Christians today, at least by their seeming behavior, don't really think that their sin is all that big of a deal anymore. We don't even like the word. It's kind of an archaic word, and it kind of scares us. So we don't talk about it very much. And even when we do, we tend to talk about the sinners out there rather than the sin in here that you and I are still battling. 
And so I simply have to ask you, do you own that about your own life, the regularity of it, the impact of it when it comes to your walk with God so that you can at least do something about it? Because the answer to this question is going to determine the level of how honestly and authentically you're walking with God. You know, John Ortberg is a uh, well-respected Christian author and teaching pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in Silicon Valley, California. He tells a humorous, but I think really revealing story of something that happened to him a few years back. You're going to like this, and it's going to hit you between the eyes, I think, too. He says, many years ago, early in our marriage, my wife and I sold our Volkswagen Beetle to buy our first really nice piece of furniture. It was a sofa. It was a pink sofa. But for that kind of money, it was called a mauve sofa. The man at the sofa store told us how to take care of it, and we took it home. We had very small children in those days, and does anybody want to guess what the number one rule in our house was from that day on? Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't breathe on the mauve sofa. Don't think about the mauve sofa. On every chair in the house you may freely sit, but on this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for on the day you sit therein, surely you will die. <laughs> he goes on to say, and then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. My wife called the man at the sofa factory, and he told her how bad that was. So she assembled our three children to look at the stain on the sofa. Laura, who was then about four, and Mallory, who was about two and a half, and Johnny, who was maybe six months. She said, children, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red stain. That's a red jelly stain. And the man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not for all eternity. Do you know how long eternity is, children? Eternity is how long we're all going to sit here until one of you tells me who put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. Orberg says for a long time they all just sat there until finally Mallory cracked. I knew she would. She said, Laura did it. <laughs> Laura said, no, I didn't. Then it was dead silence for the longest time. I knew that none of them would confess to putting the stain on the sofa because they'd never seen their mom that mad in their lives. I knew that none of them would confess to putting the stain on the sofa because they knew if they did, they'd spend all eternity in the timeout chair. I knew that none of them would confess putting the stain on the sofa because, in fact, I was the one who had put the stain on the sofa. And he says, and I was saying nothing, not a word. And then in a way that only Ortberg can do, he, he gets you laughing, he gets you sucked into the story, and then he gives you the one-two punch. Look up here on the screen. He says, here's the truth about us. We've all stained the sofa. Amen? We've all stained the sofa. A couple of years ago in reading a James McDonald book, I uh, suggested to you guys that um, when we're talking about sin uh, and this idea of, of, of just what Christ has done for us, that that all of us struggle with sin, and, and that the way to combat sin is, remember this phrase I said, uh, you need to say, I'm dead to that. And, and it became a phrase around our church here, I'm dead to that. I, I would suggest a corollary phrase we should adopt as a church is that we've all stained the sofa. Anybody here want to admit that they haven't stained the sofa? Or maybe even more to the point, that there are times where we still stain the sofa. And that's the story of the fall of humankind in our hearts and our minds, even as followers of Jesus, but we're still going to stain the sofa. And the reason that this is so important for you and I to continue to recognize this, folks, 
is to the degree that we do recognize it, is to the degree that we're walking honestly, and now we're ready to deal with it as God designed us. And so the $10 question becomes, how do we deal with sin that can still get in the way of us knowing and following God? And this brings us to the second principle. The second thing I think John shares with us, and this is the mountaintop, and that is that confessing our sin restores the fellowship that sin cuts off. Confessing our sin restores the fellowship that sin cuts off. Uh, Folks, listen, one of the most pivotal verses in all of the New Testament is the verse that comes next in 1 John chapter 1. It's verse 9. It's a verse that we ask young seminary students to memorize. If you've ever been part of the Navigators, you have to memorize this. Every good Christian group takes kids through Bible studies of this verse, and it's worth us looking at again as adults. Listen to what John says. He says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Focus on that little word, confess, confess. And I would submit to you that that is the key to you and I dealing with our sin once we get honest about it, learning to confess it. Now, we need to define and describe what we mean by confession, right? Because there are some of you that come out of a tradition in which it teaches that confession is simply going into church into kind of a darkened small black room and confessing your sins to a cleric. That's what we think of when we think of confession. Or maybe if you come out of a Protestant home like I did growing up, you think confession is really not all that big of a thing that you do all that often. And when you do, it's for a really big sin. And you would usually do it directly to God for the really big sins or maybe to your mom and dad if you offended them. And I would argue that either extreme doesn't really get the heart of what John means by confession here. So listen close. That word confession there, folks, literally means to acknowledge the truth about something, to openly get it out. It carries with it the connotation that something needs to be recognized for what it is, but then also declared so. So you acknowledge and you declare. Not necessarily publicly, might be in your heart and mind, but it means that somehow you declare it in your mind and your heart, maybe even verbally. And so check this out. John will use the same word in verse 15 of chapter 4 to say this. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is God. How do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? You acknowledge that in your heart, and you declare it. That's confession. And so with this understanding, when John says in verse 9 of chapter 1 here that we must confess our sins, don't miss that he's talking about acknowledging our particular sins and then declaring them. And don't miss that the clear context here is that you declare them directly to God. And so confession here carries with it a twofold emphasis. You recognize your particular sins and acknowledge them as sinful and then declare them before God for what they are, namely an affront to his character and something that damages that immediate relationship with him. And it's fascinating that though it doesn't say here nor anywhere else in the Bible how often we should do this, the clear implication is that whenever we sin, we should do this, right? I always get hung up with people who say, well, how often should I engage in confession? I'm like, well, duh, every time you sin. Every time you know that you sin. I like how years ago, one author in Campus Crusade said it's like spiritual breathing. That is, you breathe in and then exhale. You exhale your confession to God on a moment-by-moment basis when you realize you sin, and then you breathe in, as we'll see in a minute, his forgiveness. 
Exhale, breathe in. It's spiritual breathing. And so the connotation here is that you and I should be confessing our sins before God, big and small, taking regular moral inventory every moment of every day. So this becomes something, yeah, you do in your quiet time, yeah, you do at church, but you also do it driving down the road. You do it in line at the, at, at the store. You do it before bed. You do it when you wake. In other words, I learned years ago to develop a habit, a regular habit of confessing before God each moment of each day, keeping my accounts really short with Him. And notice, folks, that when we do this, and I mean each and every time for big things and small things, it tells us here in verse 9 that God forgives us of our sin. Now pause right there. Let me ask you a question. Does that mean that He didn't forgive you of your sin eternally before you confessed? Can't mean that, because if you know your good Christian theology, you know that God forgave you of your sins the moment you accepted him because of what Christ did for you on the cross. So I think what John is saying here is that he forgives us in a temporal way, meaning in the immediate sin that caused the immediate break in fellowship with God. Our sins are already forgiven eternally. Hang your hat on that one if you're a follower of Jesus. But as we already established, sin has the capacity, just like our kids and just like our wives, to, to make a break in that immediate relationship. And so what John is saying is that as you confess it to God, he forgives you in that immediate relationship so that relationship can be restored. Do you see that there? I like how the wonderful Irish proverb says it. It says, as the floor is swept every day, so is the soul cleansed every day by confession. That's a great word picture. Kind of like you're sweeping the house as you go along. And every time that broom hits the ground, it's you confessing your sin. And the floor is swept clean. Or as William James once put it, the great 19th century philosopher, this is really cool. He says, for him who confesses, shams are over and realities have begun. We're going to talk about how you can experience that in a minute. But I'm telling you, you can learn to confess your sin before God. The shams are now over. And the realities of you learning to walk with him in a more meaningful way, have now begun. And so maybe, folks, the reason that some of us don't feel all that close to God is because we've really never developed a spiritual habit of confession in our walk with him. In a very real way, we've not learned to walk honestly. And it's not that we've meant to be dishonest. I mean, I'm not suggesting that. It's just that we've really never recognized the ongoing effects of sin in our relationship with him and we haven't recognized that it cuts off fellowship, and so we haven't been all that serious about regular confession with him. And as a result, we fail at spiritual breathing, and we're very anemic in our Christian walk. And so as a result of this, we probably developed, and tell me if this isn't true, a lot of unhealthy responses to our sin. And I deal with these things all the time, not only in my own personal life, but in pastoring many of you. I, I have to undo these things all the time. Think of some of the unhealthy ways that we respond to our sin. One of the ways that some of us respond to our sin is we just immediately doubt our salvation, especially if it's a big sin. We're going to look at the master sinner here in just a, a minute from the Old Testament, but the reality is, is that when some of us commit really big sins, the first thing we do is doubt whether we're really saved. We've got people around us that almost suggest that to us, don't we? You know, even though we've been walking with Jesus for years and trusting in Him for eternal life and we've served Him, we've loved Him, we've had experience with Him that show us that, that our salvation is very real, we fall into some grievous big sin and the first thing we do is say, I guess I'm not really saved. I guess God didn't think of that sin when He saved me 20 years ago. The reality is, how, how wrong could that be? God knew every sin that you were going to commit 
So that one did not surprise him. Grieve him, maybe, but it didn't surprise him. Or how about this one? You go on a guilt trip for days about your sin. You ever done that one? I do this all the time. I allow guilt, which is a healthy thing for revealing sin, but not a healthy thing for wallowing in your sin. I allow guilt to stay with me for days and days on end, somehow, you know, causing my soul to do penance so that God maybe will accept me better. Have you ever found yourself thinking like that? That if you make yourself feel guilty for days on end, that maybe God will finally say, all right, come back into fellowship. You've suffered enough. Or, or, or how about this one? You don't doubt your salvation. Maybe you don't guilt trip yourself, but you vow you're never going to do it again. And then you muster up all of your fleshly power to divide and conquer your sin and beat it once for all. I see Christians do that all the time. Especially if it's one of those seven times 70 sins, you know, the kind I'm talking about. Where 10 years ago you struggled with this sin, and now 10 years later you're still struggling with this sin. And you've confessed it seven times, 70 times, and you eventually get to the point where you say, okay, God, enough is enough. I'm tired of confessing this sin for you. I'm never doing it again. And you're like a three-year-old trying to climb a rock wall, Right? I mean, three-year-olds can't climb rock walls very well. God says us on our own strength cannot defeat sin very well, but we're going to do it anyways. Aren't you tired of responding to your sin this way, church? I mean, aren't you tired of doubting your salvation or doing penance or having humans striving to defeat your old sin? Aren't you tired of stumbling along this path? I am. And so God says there's a better way to deal with sin, and it comes back to confession. Four steps I want to share with you. You guys know me. It's not, I don't believe life is about easy steps. But four things, a progression that, uh, that, that we'll learn here in a second that will help you confess your sin if you're serious about confessing it here today. And, and to show us these steps, I want to go back to the Old Testament. I hinted to that earlier. And I, and I want to take a look at what I call the master sinner himself. Most of you know him. His name is David, King David. How many of you would consider murder and adultery two pretty big sins? Let's see a hand raise here. Okay, good. Most of you. Uh, David, as you know, committed murder and adultery. And you know, I, I love how Christians function. They go, well, I did that before he's a Christian. Eh, he did not do it before he's a Christian. He did it as a, in the Old Testament equivalent, a Christian. He was the king. He was writing Psalms. He was a man after God's own heart. And you guys know the story. He's having a quiet time or something like that on his roof. And he noticed this beautiful woman, Bathsheba. And he wanted to be with her. The only problem was she was married to Uriah the Hittite. And so he developed this plan. He was going to send Uriah into battle. So he sent Uriah into battle, and he told the captain of the guard, make sure that he gets on the front lines, make sure he gets into a place where he'll be sure to be killed. And sure enough, Uriah goes into battle, and he gets killed. David effectively killed him. And then he took Bathsheba as his wife, and they had, uh, she got conceived and had a baby, and um, effectively he had adultery with her. And so here you got this guy who's like the pinnacle of what it means to be spiritual and holy in the Old Testament. And he commits murder and adultery in almost the same breath. And I love it. I heard a message years ago from a pastor I respect that said, the title of the message was, Everybody Needs a Nathan. Everybody Needs a Nathan. You might say, what's that about? Well, there was this prophet named Nathan back then who saw and knew all that David had done. And he confronted David on it. That's why everybody needs a Nathan. You and I all need people in our lives who are willing to be gut-level honest with us. And Nathan was with David. And some of you experienced that, even though you knew what you did was wrong, when you're confronted with your sin by somebody who is God-loving and holy, it pierces your heart. And in that moment, when Nathan confronted David, he was decimated in his spirit. He knew that what he did was wrong. And he was broken in that moment. And he wanted to be restored to God. 
And as only David could do, he wrote a psalm about it. Is that not cool? He wrote out his confession to God. So if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm chapter 51. Psalm chapter 51, middle of the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to put the uh, scriptures up here on the screen. And you're going to notice a fourfold progression that David uses in restoring that relationship that sin broke. And here's the first two steps. And that is that he admitted and agreed that he had sinned against God and that this sin had offended the heart of God. So that's the first two steps for you and I. If we're going to come to God at all honestly, we need to admit and agree with him about our particular sins. Look at verses 3 and 4. David couldn't be more clear. He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Pause right there. That's the admit part. He's admitting that he has sinned before God and it's right there in front of him. But then notice in a subtle way, he goes on to agree with God. He says in verse 4, against you and you only I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know, commentators wrestle with this. When he says against you, you only I've sinned, it's like, well, no, David, you sinned against Uriah, you sinned against Bathsheba, you sinned against yourself. But that's not David's point. His point is that God was the ultimate giver of the standard that David went against. He was the ultimate one who gave David the command not to do this. And so ultimately he has sinned against God. And don't miss that that's what David is saying here. He's saying, I'm just not, not admitting that I've sinned, but I'm agreeing with you, God, that this creates a wedge between you and I, and that I've hurt your character, and I've hurt you, and I feel terrible about it. Admit and agree with God that it's wrong. That's the first two steps. Now, notice what David does next, and that is that he asks God for the renewing work that only God can do to be applied to his life. Look at verses 7 and 10. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And now, folks, you gotta listen close here. We now live in New Testament times, what some theologians call the age of grace since the dawn of Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus today, what these verses mean to us is that as we admit and agree with God about our sins, that we can then ask God to apply the cleansing blood of Christ to our sins. And again, he's already forgiven our sins eternally, but sin makes a mess in the moment, and Christ's blood also covers those sins. And so you ask God to forgive you in the temporal moment of your sins, and as David says, to renew a spirit in you and restore the grace and forgiveness. So you admit, you agree, you ask, but then there's one step missing. And i got to tell you guys, this is a step that most believers miss today, and it sabotages, it derails this whole process, and it's this one, and that you must finally accept God's cleansing work for you in Christ. In other words, you need to accept the fact that he has forgive you, forgiven you, get up, get on with your life, and leave the guilt and shame where it belongs, and that's in the lap of God and at the cross of Christ. One of the hardest things to do in the whole confession process, I'm telling you, but absolutely indispensable. And isn't it interesting that this is how David wraps up his psalm? Look at verses 16 and 17 of Psalm 51. He says, after admitting, agreeing, and asking, he says, for you will not delight in the sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. Now get this, you will not despise. 
That's David's way of letting it go. He's saying, look, if I could play the sacrifice game and do penance between now and whenever, I'd do it, God. But you're not going to accept that. That's not what you're looking for. No, you want a broken and contrite heart that just lays myself without excuse, without denial before you. Again, in New Testament terms, that pleads the blood of Christ. And that when I do that, isn't it interesting? He says, you will not despise that. Personalize it. You will not despise me, is what David is saying there. In other words, you forgive me. You accept me. You know, folks, this is exactly the same thing that John wraps up this section that we're looking at here with today. Look at 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. He says the same thing. After laying out this whole confession thing, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, there's two words there that confuse most Bible readers. That's that word advocate and that word propitiation. They're really not hard words. They're legal terms. The word advocate simply means you got somebody who's pleading on your behalf. Who is that? Jesus. And Jesus is pleading on our behalf because he was fully righteous, because he went to the cross, and he can do it. And he does do it. And John's telling us there that when he pleads on our behalf, and he does, if you're a follower of him, your sins are going to be forgiven by God even those immediate temporal ones, when you confess them to God. And when it uses that word propitiation, that word simply means to appease anger. You ever mad at somebody and had that anger appeased, where no longer you're not angry with them, but your heart is now softened to them? That's what John is saying there, that God might have been ticked off that you originally did that, but now because of Jesus and because of your confession, he's no longer angry at you. And that's why I said you've got to accept his forgiveness. And see, some of us have been hanging on to the same sin for 10 years. Again, we might be committing it over and over again, but the reality is we've been hanging on to that sin, never really letting it go, and saying, even if we're still having trouble getting over it, saying to God, but I know that you forgive me. I know that the blood of Christ covers that sin, and I'm going to accept it myself because you have forgiven. You know, I don't like the phrase self-forgiveness. Somebody said to me just this week, well, make sure you remind them that self-forgiveness is just not about God forgiving them, but they've got to forgive themselves. I know what they're saying, and I agree with that. But the thing that scares me about self-forgiveness is that we live in a world today, if you watch Oprah, that believes in self-forgiveness way before or not based on God-forgiveness. Give me a head nod that we understand that. And I sit there and go, well, what's the basis then for self-forgiveness? There is none. No, the only basis you and I have for self-forgiveness, and we do need to forgive ourselves, don't hear me saying anything otherwise, but the only basis you have for that, now listen, is the fact that God has forgiven you. Isn't that cool? And so Christians can engage in self-forgiveness, but it's based on God's forgiveness first. As John is going to go on to say, he first loved us. And because of that, we can now love ourselves, we can love him, we can love others, but it all goes back to what God has done for you and me. And so I beg you, don't miss this last step. Don't miss the acceptance step when it comes to the forgiveness that he applies. As I've said quite often, I said in Easter Sunday, there's not one sin that's been committed in this auditorium that God will not forgive. In fact, the Bible says there's only one unforgivable sin, and that's for a whole other sermon, but it's the sin of final rejection of him. It's called apostasy. It's called the unforgivable sin. If you, if you give a final and full rejection of Christ this side of heaven, then, then you're going to have a rough eternity. But the reality is, is that outside of that, outside of that sin, there's no sin that you can commit in which God says, I will not forgive. 
There's no sin that you can commit that God says that when you confess will not restore that relationship that was broken because of that sin. Guys, I'm telling you, if I didn't believe this, if I didn't believe what we're talking about right now, I would not be a pastor. I wouldn't be a Christian standing up here today. I've had way too much sin in my life. The whole core of the Christian truth claim is that he forgives us and that we can move on and become the people that he wants us to be. So here's how we want to end the service today. Uh, knowing that we're going to talk about this this morning, we agreed Tuesday in our planning meeting that we dare not just get to this point in the service and say, well, amen, be on your way. You know, go. That would be like terrible. We need to give you a chance to apply this. And again, this is a moment between you and God. This is not you know, going into a dark confessional room. This is not you know, engaging in even small group activity right now, though that's fine to do. No, this is a time for you and God to have a time of confession. And so Joe and the band are going to come out here in a minute, and they're going to play a song. I think it's an old familiar hymn that you're familiar with, just about being cleansed. But more important is what you're going to do during that song. And I would just encourage you, if anything has touched your heart here this morning, to use the next four or five minutes as a time of confession between you and God. Maybe it's something recent. Maybe you just felt guilty about something you did this week. Might not even be a big thing, but man, keep short accounts with God. Let's confess right now those things. Maybe it's something huge. Maybe it's something you've not been able to let go of for 10, 15 years now. Maybe today is the day that you let go of that. For some of you, you're going to want to come down front here to the altar. I think that's fine. For some of you, just bodily getting up and coming down here and kneeling or standing or sitting is what you need to do. But you don't have to. If you want to stay at your pew and, and, uh, and have your time with God there, that's fine too. We, we want a total freedom here. I'm going to stay down here. I'm going to sit here and confess my own sin. So if you want to come and, and join me, feel free to do that. But more importantly, use this time between you and God. Use it as a time to confess your sin, admit, agree, ask, and accept. You'll be glad that you did. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that your word is always true and that though we have trouble believing it and even incorporating it into our experience, it's nevertheless true. And so God, it's do or die time for some of us here today where uh, we've known the truth for years, but we've never really had the guts to apply it. So I pray, God, today that we might apply this, that we might have the courage, the fortitude, the gumption in our Christian life to admit our sin, to agree with you it's grievous against your character, to ask for the blood of Christ to be applied in the moment, and then also, Lord, to accept your forgiveness. Even if we don't feel it always, even if we know we're still struggling, may we accept it, because we know, Lord, it's from that pure place of forgiveness that we have any hope of changing. So God, receive our confession now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.